Hi, thank you for downloading this podcast, the first in a series of conversations with Dr Rick Bowler. Welcome to our dining room, where today we are chatting about Rick's specialism, race and racism. Enjoy! So me and my dad won't really know what we're doing. This is the first in a series of podcasts that we want to record of us having conversations about his work. So I'm just going to introduce him like this because I forgot to ask him to introduce himself in any sort of formal way. So I'm just going to hand you over to my dad. Well, I'm I'm, uh, Rick Bowler. I've got a doctorate. I teach at the University of Sunderland to community and youth workers and social workers. started out as a mental health practitioner and I've done a range of jobs working with young people and families and communities and I've got a specific interest in challenging unjust authority. Can you tell me a little bit about some of your recent work? Probably the biggest thing I've done most recently was, was finish my doctorate in 2015 which was a study in youth work. I interviewed in depth 28 qualified youth workers who had all come to work in a White Highland region. So it's a monocultural area and the northeast of England was that region. And in that particular piece I was really interested in how they had each understood how race mattered to them, how they challenged racism in their lives. So I took a biographical approach to their lives and how their personal lives might have impacted on their professional becomings. So I was really fascinated in how they themselves understood their own racial reality. That was the study. So I've been very interested in this personal experience of race and how race lives, sometimes without us knowing it, often absent from a critical dialogue in public spaces, almost completely absent from our education system, almost entirely absent from our political education system. And so, therefore, I was really interested in how white and black, BME, black minority ethnic and white, men and women, so I interviewed both male and female workers, it was a pretty good split between the 28, how race had come into their lives, how whiteness appeared to them, what being white meant, how whiteness might have impacted on them in terms of their different racial positions. So that was my my PhD thesis. Um, There was just a couple of things I wrote down that based on the fact that if people like me and Meg were listening to it, we might not understand some of the terminology. Okay, so that's really So like dominant white... Spaces? Spaces, yeah. Okay. And then there was something about Highland... Okay, well, here's actually, I can give you two examples from your own lives. If I, if I think about my own children, is when my eldest daughter was little, and I remember coming out of the house one day and finding my daughter, who ostensibly, from the purposes of a visual aid, people had assumed she was white. Of course, she is white, but of course, she's also mixed race. So she's mixed, because my family is very much a mixed family. In the spaces we lived, that was a dominant white space. Whiteness was part of a majoritarian discourse, a part of a majoritarian way of being, a culture of whiteness. And I don't mean this in, in a way that white people had done this deliberately. Most people grow up with this. This is really about how the state organises space, how the ideology of a state organises a space that people live in. 
And so this was a very dominant white space. So I remember her shouting out, I'll black your eye if you call me blackie again or something like that. And realising the very intense moment of overt racism, an encounter between her and these other young people had occurred, which was a transgression of the friendships that were developing. So suddenly had entered into this space entirely because of my body. So my body, in relation to the way these other young people and presumably some of their families saw me, was through a racial lens, but no one spoke about race. Apart from what we were talking about at home, Mm -hmm. it wasn't being spoken about. I didn't get that we were different colours. There must have been a moment when I looked at you and thought, oh yeah, your skin's that colour and my skin's this colour. We were a family. Yes. And then suddenly other people were coming in off the street and at school, sometimes teachers... Yeah. As he said, sometimes friends, and making this comment, sometimes it was aggressive. Yeah. Yes, sometimes it doesn't have to be aggressive, I agree with you. It's not always an overtly aggressive act. It's a daily act of ordinariness, is how critical race theorists might talk about it. So it becomes an act of ordinariness, but the state denies that it is there. It's a function of the state, really, is how I would see it. I think it's part of the attachment to Britishness, Englishness, of whiteness. It's a part of the problem that the British Empire, the British colonial system and the British involvement in transatlantic slavery were all based on a logic of white supremacy. And this state has never been able to open itself up for a proper discussion about that reality, which is as much the reality as building railways, as having coal mines. It's part of British history and it needs to be told to everybody so that all British people can recognise how today those lives are being lived out on the base of this falsehood of this thing called race. I'm really fascinated in how is this thing carrying on, why is it being reproduced, how did it impact on people's personal lives? So your story is really interesting to me because not only, of course, am I your dad and therefore I was deeply troubled that you were having to face up to encounters in life as a consequence of the fact that my mother was Indian. I'm really proud of all of those things Mm. and it's given me a lens from which to see the world. That sense of humanity that I have comes from all of that. Oh no, it's a lovely thing to say because I think the other part of the story, which I think is real, and it's, it's a part of this story that's never really told, the deep vein of humanity is often in the body of a migrant. That Some of the greatest ways we might understand humanity might be to interview children who are fleeing persecution. We read any of the stories from the children in the Holocaust. You know, there are some really powerful pieces of literature written by those that got out from the concentration camps of the Second World War and who wrote about their experiences as children in those camps. They are stunningly telling stories about our our common humanity. And yet those people at the margins of society often have the touchstone, as I would call it, of who we really are as a people. But their voice is silenced by this Mm. nonsense chatter from those people who dominate. They dominate and reproduce a particular kind of knowledge system which is also whiteness. It's a form of whiteness. That's why this stuff's so difficult. Let's go back to the... um, White Highland? White Highland, yeah. Did I use the concept White Highland? Yeah. Yeah. White Highland... In my mind, I'm thinking 
What's this got to measure with Scotland? <laughs> okay, no, no, that's a great... Are the Orkneys. <laughs> yes, no, that's a really lovely thing to say. Yes, like any term, or any of these terms, we have to then go back into our history to identify when it was first used. So the concept of White Highland in most recent times has been used by a white professor of education called Chris Gain, who talked about monocultural schools that might have predominantly white pupils in them and staff in them as white highlands. But what he really needed to do to make that a more grounded concept and a deeper concept is to recognise that Cecil Rhodes, who, of course, Rhodesia was named after, coined this term when they took over the hills in the lush hills, one has to say, the lovely, lovely, beautiful hills in Kenya. And they colonised these hills and moved in. You know, they weren't there to start with. They moved into them and they created their big houses and big farms or whatever else and looked down upon the population of non-white black African Kenyans who actually were in various different tribal groupings like the Mau Mau and others. And then established a vicious organised labour exploitation colony to produce wealth on the back of British belief at that time of whiteness as somehow civilised. So the concept of civilised behaviour was reorganised in this form to suggest that actually what white people were doing in those places was civilising the natives. In fact, actually what we were doing as a nation was extracting from people their lifeblood and their uh, mineral wealth and their money, their economies, and those that resisted, the Mau Mau in Kenya, we herded up, put into concentration camps and tortured, actually. I have uh, no idea. I heard cold, you using that right. phrase again and again. And of course I didn't think you were talking about a community right. of white people who lived right. up in Scotland. Right. That mm-hmm. is what it was making me think. I had no idea mm-hmm. its links were with what happened in colonial Kenya and that's just that's a tragedy. Then the concept to be transported and repossessed, really, is how Chris Gain did it, which is what academics sometimes try and do. The problem is, outside of a situated context, outside of a clear understanding of a historical uh, relationship to the terms, yeah. it becomes adrift. When, when things are adrift, I don't know what the, quite the right words, we need to hook them back up yeah. to the original ideas and original histories. Reading recommendations by Dr Rick. So I read Bill Schwartz's work and I just think, wow, uh, Elizabeth Kowaleski-Wallace, I mean, her work on slavery and um, museums like the Transatlantic Slavery Museum in Liverpool or Bristol. So me and my dad rambled on about White Highlands and he admitted it wasn't his favourite term. So I asked him, what would you use instead? As he talked about that, he ended up clarifying the whole concept of whiteness. Maybe what critical race theories might just call majoritarian uh, whiteness or whiteness as hegemony, which is a bit of a more complex term, but you know, whiteness as dominance, whiteness yeah. as whiteness as an oppressive force. And this is not talking about white people as people. It's not about white people. It's I mean, about... that's the danger, isn't it? Yes. I'm never insulted or offended because I know exactly what you mean. But I know people who are white who misunderstand that and take it so personally. That knowledge that you have is what I would also call insider knowledge. And it's different to my knowledge. So if I share this with you, I remember having a conversation with one of my brothers who, like you, would pass as white, is white, but doesn't necessarily see himself entirely as white. He would go into 
places and people would say things to him. White people would assume he was white in their own terms of what whiteness is. So this thing of whiteness is really complex and it's not static and not innate. It's, it's a construction of identity. And he would end up in fights because he'd end up hitting people because they were overtly racist, assuming he would also be overtly racist. So they would say things to him like, oh, you know, those black people, blah, 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 in whatever way, he, you know, those, you know, Asian people or whatever, um, would just either hit them, tell them to get lost. Of course, people can be racist and not know it in its entirety. So I would say that they are operating from a particular kind of set of logics about race which are hidden from them. They're hidden in this society in a way which is functional for those people who run the society because they can carry on lying, I would say, deceiving, obfuscating, fogging the world around us. So they offer people very, very poor deal in a democracy. They offer the people some little bits of cake and some little bits of nonsense in order to keep them quiet or to keep them reproducing ideas which ultimately are not taking us anywhere. They're taking us into conflictual human relations rather than solving the kind of problems, the big issue problems, the real problems that we have, or collectively we have, living on this planet. I think the other thing, I just want to say this, because what you said to me was really fantastic, is that what your experiences and, and some of my brother's experiences and other people I know's experiences of being white are really brilliant writers on this. So it tells us that whiteness is unstable, that actually what you do by just your existence. So the consequence of my mother having five children, three of whom would pass as not white, and two that might pass as white, that the issues of whiteness are as unstable in this sense as the issue of blackness. I mean, it, these are not static, uh, natural formations, but whiteness acts as if it is. It whiteness, and that's why, why your experiences help to make it a little more ordinary. And by making it ordinary, by confronting people the way that you do without being horrible. I mean, you just confront people. So you then just pass that back to them as a mirror and say, whoa, you have this back. At that, for me, is exposing the deep roots of the problem of race in our society. Oh, I'm pleased I could help. <laughs> ah, it's okay. Anyway, there's a couple more questions. Okay. Just to keep it light for our first podcast. Sorry, dear. <laughs> Well, you've already told me what your PhD is about. Some of your favourite authors, you've already covered nice. that. Yeah, so that's yeah. quite good. So then we've talked about some of the concepts and the language that you've used. I've written this, and maybe it's come from my ignorance and maybe not fully understanding what you write about, but you look mainly at systemic racism. Yes. What is systemic racism? Is that what you've just explained? Okay, right. I think if you think about this in terms of your uncle and my eldest brother, he's a physicist who studied Vedic scriptures. So he has tried to draw together the ecological approach of the six strands of Vedic knowledge, the knowledge in which India as a world has been born upon, this early knowledge, 
to modern day physics. In there, what they talk about is ecological systems approaches, how the world is a social system, how I was going to say, environmentalists talk about this, don't they? And geographers talk about this, that the seas interact with the land, that we, without our trees, then we end up with global warming. So we've got the system. So if the earth in its planetary system is a system, and if on the Earth itself we're living in an ecosystem, so I'm trying to use these kind of understandings, then in my world, in the social sciences world, we have drawn from some of this knowledge to look at social systems and what the arguments are, and again there are some stunning writers on this, Vanilla Silver or Zias Leonardo, um, they're, they're, you know, Patricia Hill Collins, the, these people are just stunning to me anyway, just as, you know, I think, wow, why, why have these people not been taught in school? And what they talk about really is, you know, Charles Mills talk, you know, these things are about how whiteness is a frame of a privileging social system. So the idea of white supremacy, which drove the transatlantic slave trade, it gave the USA its money. It gave it its money on free labor, labor that died over a very short period of life. Workers did not have a long lifespan. All of the exploitations that were in that brutal, violent, degrading, exploitative system were allowed and enabled by some white people organizing around the idea of white supremacy. So organization like in America, the Ku Klux Klan, here we have Empire Loyalists or the National Front or Combat 18 or the British National Party or UKIP or, you know, these variant forms of loyalism and virulence around whiteness as if it's a natural identity that produced some sort of genes that enable some people to always be in charge. Well, you know, how, how funny is that, that the people who are always in charge come up with a system that says, oh, we're here naturally, you know. Uh, and so the social system element is, is really what Joe Fagan is an American sociologist, white American sociologist, again, stunning writers, writes a lot of empirical data, research, really, really interesting stuff. And he talks about this thing he calls systemic racism and the white racial frame. And I think those make sense to me. You know, I love listening to podcasts. Right. There's this podcast I've been listening to, which is called S-Town, and it's following the story of a guy who lives in Woodstock, Alabama. Okay. And he, journalist has met him, and he's decided to, he worked for three years following him and befriended him, Mm -hmm. and he's fascinating for all different reasons. But one of the things he is, is very paranoid about his town and how the town operates and how it's very racist and very sexist and how it's corrupt and there's one particular family he seems to have a real thing about and they're at the 3k lumber yard oh, i've looked okay. it up they're real okay i looked right. it up to talk to you about so you know fact checking okay the journalist eventually yeah. gets to meet them because a lot of people either want to speak to the journalist or don't for mm-hmm. different reasons mm-hmm. fascinating so the journalist asks this guy so you know being suggested that perhaps you're called 3K based on the fact that you're a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, he doesn't say yes. 
but he doesn't say no. Mm-hmm. What he says is something that, along the lines of, oh, left-wing liberals always poking their nose in. Mm-hmm. I think that says a lot. I think it says everything, actually. What it tells us is that bit between people who are ignorant and who don't know and people who do know but keep it backstage. Pico and Fagan did this really fantastic piece of work on backstage and front stage racism. The ideas are sort of born from Goffman's work on performance and performativity, and, um, how we all live in a, on a stage, really, and may all be acting out the world in that kind of thinking. And what they discovered was that a lot of white people, not all white people, but a lot of white people, hold on to ideas that get reproduced backstage. So the 3K people clearly know who they are, they know what they believe, and they reproduce that behind the closed doors or their curtains, and that they don't want to make that too public, either because they know it's illegal or they know that they would be looked down upon for having those views. So even David Duke, who was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan at one point, quite recently suggested that he wasn't racist, and that actually wearing these white hoods and burning crosses presumably was a cultural habit. It was their culture. Some people are very conscious of this stuff, but they keep it backstage. In Britain, David Starkey was a very good example of that. He's a white historian, an establishment historian, I would call him, who claimed after the 2011 riots that white working class chavs, as he called them, are black, that they've been impregnated or enculturated with black, and he specifically mentioned Jamaican forms of culture, which are deficient. That's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. shocking. I don't know how the man is not in prison, Mm -hmm. but he certainly should be being educated somewhere. But he's an exceptionally privileged, both academic, white academic, and establishment figure. He's on the BBC often. So he's an example of what I would say is somebody like the 3K people who don't wish to say they are. They know it. They're conscious of it, but they hold these things backstage. But occasionally, because of their confidence or in a particular moment, it spills out like bile or you know sewerage breaking out of a of a of a broken sewer pipe, and and then they spill their beans, and we can see them for what they are, uh, and very quickly the system seems to wrap them up again and put them away. I think that's highly problematic. Hey, thanks for listening to our conversation about race. I hope you've enjoyed it and found it useful. Until next time, love each other, don't be racist. Bye!